The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Posh Veg Edition. It's Wednesday, November 27th, 2019. On today's show, from the silliest of premises, you film people watching TV and then make a TV show out of it. Gogglebox has become a beloved UK hit. We will be joined to discuss it by Slate's new editor-in-chief, Jared Holt. And then Gourmet Makes is the viral video sensation from Bon Appetit magazine. We discuss with old friend of the program, OFOP, Dan Pashman, Danny Pash, Danny the P., and finally, Slate has compiled the 50 best nonfiction books of the last 25 years we discuss with compiler and book critic for Slate, Laura Miller. Joining me today is Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Julia, it's a long title, so I'm sure you sometimes forget, but you are the deputy managing editor in charge of arts and entertainment and culture for the Los Angeles Times. I think you added a few words there, but that that <laughs> basically approximates my title. Yeah, you get the point. Though. Also, I um, came all the way to New York and Dana like ran away. Like Dana is at some screening. I'm like sitting here in the Slate offices, but I have someone exciting next to me. Uh, do you want to go ahead and make the introduction? I wasn't trying to horn in on your space, but Jared Hold. Editor-in-Chief of Slate, hello. Hello, Julia. How are you? I'm very excited to be here with you. You're Dana Plus, not quite as blonde. Anyhow, all right. Well, Jared, welcome to the program. Great to have you on. But one thing we need to clear up, and that's that um, titles aside, Julia Turner will always be the boss of me. (laughs) (laughs) But Jared is now the boss of me on this podcast. On this podcast, now you're both the boss of me. Transitively. Jared is still the boss of you. Sorry. You know, uh, I'm not going to uh, undermine that. This is a good segue into the meta-ness that is this show, perhaps. <laughs> Gogglebox, which I only heard about a week ago, is in its 14th season in the UK. I mean, everything about this is improbable. Its premise is very simple, though. With barely more than GoPro production values, you film ordinary Brits watching TV. But to clarify just a little bit, you have a a a few families, a handful of uh, families, the regulars over the course of a season, and they're filmed in their own homes watching the same episodes of the same shows. So, for example, like the venerable soap opera EastEnders, The Nightly News, Britain's Got Talent, whatever that's called, and then you cut between them reacting. The key, of course, is finding ordinary people who, through the course of the season, they become television stars themselves, nonetheless remain ordinary-seeming. That's harder, probably, than it seems. Anyway, from this now anachronistic, somewhat anachronistic habit of a family gathering around the TV and watching a show at the same time, and this very postmodern premise, watching people watch, there has come this very funny hit TV show. Let's listen to a clip. On Friday night, BBC One took us to Walford for yet another dramatic installment of this. If you don't know the EastEnders theme tune, then where have you been all your life? I still think Manchester looked better from the air. It does, doesn't it? In the highly charged episode, it was all about to kick off. (gasps) (gasps) Oh, Oh, what's happened here? Was that gunfire? Gunshot in the ends. Urgent assistance. Sound of gunshot from the Queen. Did she used to be in it years ago, eh? She's still in it. It's still EastEnders. <laughs> <laughs> Armed backup. Urgently required. Who's that? 
That's Hunter, that smells son. He killed his dad. (laughs) (laughs) We're laughing already. I mean, Jared, let me start with you. This is so improbable, and yet it's kind of goddamn great, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it took me about 10 minutes to get over my inner snob with this show, because at first you're like, wait a minute, am I really going to watch for 40 minutes people watching television? And there's something about seeing people on their couch that reminds you of you being on your couch, and you feel this kind of like collective inertia set in. But they're all incredibly entertaining in their responses to this. And ultimately, you know, the show is sort of cozy. Um, And for an American viewer, it's also just like great anthropology, like the accents alone um, are just, you know, so fun to sort of sort through. Um, And then there's the kind of people's court aspect of it, which I'm curious what you two both thought about when they're responding to the news. Yeah, I watched them watch the Prince Andrew interview, Yes, which was, in fact, and I, it, it, it helped give me the clearest window into why this show would be so successful because it also, I'm sure, serves as kind of like a shortcut to catching up on TV. It's like a highlight reel of TV. So I hadn't, I was traveling the weekend the Prince Andrew thing came out. I heard it was amazing and a crazy train wreck. And why would he ever do that? And I had in my mind like, oh, sure, I'll try and find a stream of that Prince Andrew thing sometimes. Sure sounds interesting. Um, And then, of course, I never did. And I felt like I'd gotten the highlights from reading the coverage. And then it was, in fact, very useful to see his kind of stilted, um, not at all getting the gravity of the charges, uh, quote, I let the side down sort Mm -hmm. of exclamation explanations for his behavior. And then to see the stern, very well prepared interviewer, and then to just see the complete shock and to borrow a word I've never used before, gogglement of, <laughs> of of the crew as they watch like a royal disgrace himself on TV it was a great way. It was like much better than just watching the interview. And it made me realize that, because I had the same experience when I first turned this on, I was like, this has been on for 14 seasons? Like, what? Um, and then once I got there, I was like, oh, this actually would be kind of a useful way to feel like you caught up with TV in addition to the anthropological pleasures that it offers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you, I had not seen the Prince Andrew interview either. Had heard that it was a car wreck. Did not realize it was that level of a car wreck. And having them sort of respond to it in real time with, you know, as he sort of presents Pizza Express and Woking as his alibi for why he couldn't have been out (laughs) uh, at Tramp's nightclub. Well, no, because he'd gone to a Pizza Express and Woking with his daughter and, you know, they say, well, how, how do you remember that? And you, I sort of thought, oh, well, he'll come out with, you know, I had it in my diary or whatever. And he said, well, it's quite unusual for me to have gone to a Pizza Express. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then you've got, you know, all of our viewers sort of um, just sputtering in, in disbelief at what they're seeing. Right, and speculating about which Pizza Express thing he'd ordered. And then as the American viewer, you have the additional layer of just like thinking about European versions of fast food joints of typically American foods. And obviously pizza is Italian, but... Fast food pizza, I think, is American. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Steve, what what did you make of this? Well, I mean, you know, I went in fully skeptical and expecting to be, you know, kind of goggle boxed at the, the fact that we were doing the, uh, this is a subject I thought, you know, how can you make any hay out of this? Well, first, I, I loved it. I was laughing my ass off. It's just incredibly funny. Um, and secondly, it's a rich text. I mean, it's it's, you know, it's filled with curious anachronisms, right? I mean, England is a kind of single family, right? Encompassing classes, uh, genders. I mean, it's just, it's 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 got, it, it both 
calls upon this very ancient idea of England as an island and a place unto itself, and all Englanders as somehow, to, uh, or or you know, citizens of the UK possibly, but I, I feel English somehow is, is the central construct here. You know, you know, as a kind of family, which in the age of Brexit has got to be enormously comforting thought. Um, and then secondly, of course, TV is the modern hearth. I mean, the idea of of people appointment viewing all at the same time, ha- you know, having similar reactions um, and playing off of one another simultaneously as they're doing it all across the country at one time itself is incredibly an- anachronistic. I mean, my, my family, I think, is not atypical. We tend to be siloed. Um, you know, our, in our media choices and on our respective laptops and in far corners of the house, uh, you know, we're a, a loving family and we can do that without uh, it being representative of any, you know, lack of deeper feeling. But but nonetheless, there's something kind of like anti-social media about Gogglebox. Um, it's, it's, it's also, you would ruin the show the moment people became self-conscious performers and so therefore um i thought the casting the story behind the casting choices are interesting you have to find people who are reluctant to do it who remain relatively unselfconscious in 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 the doing of it so you really feel as though you're you're peering in on them um i think it's wonderful i love it i think casting is fascinating because so so first of all they find the people who apply they say they rarely go for the people who apply they one article about it said that they would go to hairdressers and bartenders and ask them about their most valuable clients and customers and then go try to find those people, which is just a commitment to the casting effort that I applaud. Um, they also don't allow while people remain in the goggle box um, pantheon of of potential viewers every week. They're not allowed to give interviews. They're basically not allowed to trade on their position on Gogglebox to become famous. And if they decide to, then they have to leave the show. So there's not the, like, snookification of these people. And I remember when we talked about Jersey Shore, we talked about the specificity of the milieu that it was portraying and how different that was from the kind of, like, generic airbrushed bachelor or bachelorette universe where it felt like everybody comes from the same like tanning bed rather than or whatever spray tan whatever people do now that tanning is bad for you i'm from california we still believe in tanning um but I, there there's something so specific about these people and the other thing i love that feels so british about the comedy and restraint of it is that it is true that they succeed sometimes and some people are very unselfconscious and just seem to be watching and then there are people who approach it more as an opportunity to be wags and make jokes and there's like a hilarious couple who there's sort of a husband who thinks he's a wit and a wife who seems to hate him, and they're sitting on a couch with, like, leaf upholstery that matches their wallpaper. We need to talk about Giles and Mary. Okay, okay, you've gone far enough down that you know. To please talk about Giles and Mary. Well, yeah, I mean, so I read, I guess they did come out with a book that I think is, like, Diaries of Nobodies, or that's the title. Um <laughs> And they claim that this show, or at least he did, uh, has saved their marriage because now they're actually spending time together watching television. Um, Yeah, and so they'll watch things like, I guess, that gold toilet that was in the Guggenheim had then been moved to a mansion in Britain and was stolen. Uh, And he'll say something like, Mary, do you think that it will start a a movement? And there'll be a pause. Right. And it's like sort of humor that you kind of groan at, um, but that they seem to have, you know, bantered back and forth with each other for however many years their marriage has has gone for, 30 years or so. 
Their marriage did not seem to be in great shape based on my viewing, but perhaps I wasn't watching the correct episodes. I, yeah, I, it, I, it, it felt like the camera was observing their bond and its strains, and she was playing to it a little bit too and sort of just um, saying, please stop. Uh, but anyway, they each have different responses. Some of them are like trying to wag, be, be performative wags more than others, and some to seem to be more genuinely responding. But I I don't know. It's very successful. And it did. They tried to make it happen here on Bravo for three or four years. It was called The People's Couch, and it failed. And the reports of it were that they just cast from the bland, wannabe famous American casting bucket rather than casting for kind of geographical diversity or diversity of accent or anthropological interest. Yeah, I think in the New Yorker article about the show that um, ran the other week, uh, Tanya Alexander, who oversees it in Britain, said that she thought one of the problems with the American version was that um, it was just too aspirational. And she said, you know, quote, I didn't want people with perfect teeth, Um, Hmm. which is sort of, you know, an old uh, insult toward the Brits, which I think no longer longer holds true. but I feel like, yes, yeah, so often with reality shows, you feel like people who are on them have their eyes on the prize. And the prize is not continuing on that reality show. It's starting Skinny Girl Margarita Mix, or it's moving on to the next thing. And I think watching these viewers, you can imagine them 10, 15 years time, uh, you know, being in the same place, watching television on their couch, the way we all will be. Except yeah. for we won't be. Like, that's what's so weird about it, is yeah. that it feels so nostalgic for, like, it was. I was watching it sitting on the couch in our bedroom with an earbud in, not out loud, while my husband watched some other stuff that he needed to watch for work adjacently on the bed with his earphones in. You know, we watched a lot of TV together at the beginning of our marriage, and we don't that much anymore. And I don't, I, I, like you, Steve, I don't think it mm-hmm. is a sign right. of the poor state of our union. It's just like the way technology has taken us. But it's yes. the notion of collective. I mean, I remember I, my sister used to mock me growing up for having what she called the best TV face. Like my, I think I would be a great goggle boxer because my face is just like a wrapped mirror of whatever I am watching. And like, she would just come in and watch me watch TV and I would be like, you know, making horrified faces or very invested faces. And I, I get totally lost in it. So I, I, I have a secret desire to be on goggle box, but it wouldn't work in my house at this point. Even my children who've just discovered watching things, just like get up and put on their own headphones and watch separate Lego YouTube videos every morning. No, I think you're I mean, absolutely right. weekend mornings. Uh, yeah, it hits the nostalgia impulse really hard. I watched it with my partner and he said, this sort of makes me miss this whole other era of watching television. And you sort mm-hmm. of think back to, and you know, perhaps it's apocryphal, but like the finale of MASH, right? And the notion that apparently once that ended, there was like this collective toilet flush in New York City. <laughs> as you know, a million households all... Um, yeah, it just doesn't, uh, doesn't, yeah, exist, doesn't exist anymore. Exist. I mean, it's the Super Bowl is the last remaining pretty much. Um, uh, but you know, it's funny, a lesson to be learned here is that, um, you know, the, the, the there's a kind of lifespan to any medium, right? It begins with a moral panic, uh, about its effects and, uh, its corrosive effects on, on society and the social fabric. And it ends with deep reverent nostalgia, as something else comes along to be corrosive to the social fabric. Um, you know, and se- television separated us, dumbed us down. Now it's the thing that draws us together. I just find hilarious as someone who grew up in the heyday of moral- morally panicking uh, about TV, uh, about the idiot box. Um, but, the, you know, but and, and I would also add to that, um, on a serious note, is that 
all cultural critics ought to pay attention to this TV show for the simple fact that people never consume culture passively and as its unwitting victims. I mean, there is a way in which gigantic for-profit conglomerates do shove things down our throats in an attempt to make us docile subjects. But there's also a degree in which people just intrinsically are not docile subjects. They're, They're funny, playful, spontaneous, inexorably spontaneous creatures who react in their own way to what's thrown at them. And even if that's the last refuge of human freedom is to be sarcastic on your sofa. It's a pretty fucking good one, which is why I love this TV show. Jared, thank you so much for coming on our show and, and talking about Gogglebox. Thank you so much for having me. All right, now is the moment in our show when we do The Business, which since I'm in New York, I get to author today. In Slate Plus, we have invited Laura Miller to stay on to talk about the nonfiction books that transformed our lives, our worldviews, and our reading experiences. Uh, It only made my reading list longer to have that conversation. Stay tuned to hear what you might want to read next. Uh, To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the magazine. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Also, we are approaching holiday season, the time of year when we do a wild, woolly, sometimes drunken call-in show. It will be 7 a.m. where I am, so maybe not that, but maybe so. Uh, Please call 973-826-0318 and ask us any question you would like. We may play your recorded voice and answer it. We like the nonsensical and the serious. We like the topical and the whimsical. Uh, If you would like to hear us discuss it, call us and ask it to us. Ask us it. Anyway, do it. 973-826-0318. All right. Back to the show. The premise is pretty simple. A young and very wry host, Claire Saffet, stands at the station of the BA test kitchen uh, and makes by her own human hands foods that are products of labs and factories, famous junk foods. So the first episode, for example, was the Twinkie, and she makes a gourmet version of it. The show began as a YouTube throwaway, and probably because of its eh, whatever attitude, it's become a huge hit. Let's listen to a clip. Hi, everyone. I'm Claire. We are here in the BA test kitchen, and today I am making gourmet. Ferrero Rocher, which is arguably already a gourmet snack. This was really, I think, kind of like a fan favorite and was requested a lot, so we're going to try it today. I was aware of Ferrero Rocher because of the commercials, but I never really ate them much as a kid growing up. So this says that Rocher chocolates are a tempting combination of luscious, creamy, chocolatey filling surrounding a whole hazelnut within a delicate, crisp wafer, all enveloped in milk, chocolate, and finely chopped hazelnuts. I think hazelnut is kind of like a sophisticated flavor. Whether or not it's actually fancy, it's certainly marketed to be thought of as like a fancy treat. If you're like trying to buy a gift for someone at the (laughs) drugstore, this is your best option to look fancy. All right. For this segment, we are delighted to be joined by old friend of the program, Dan Pashman, Danny the Pash, Danny P. Hey. Uh, Hey, man, of the Sporkful <laughs> Sporkful podcast, James Beard award-winning podcast, I should say. Uh, how's it going, Dan? It's been too way too long. It's good, Steve. Thanks for having me back. 
it's kind of a punchline in the print world to pivot to video. Everyone wanted to do it. The ad rates for video are higher by and large. Everybody failed. It became a punchline and these guys succeeded. Why do you think? Well, I mean, the short answer is Claire Saffitz. I mean, Gourmet Makes, you know, it, it, they, they had a show before that, the um, It's Alive with, um, who's the big hunky chef in the kitchen? Brad, yes, Brad, Brad Leone. Brad. Right, so... So that's the show still exists, by the way. It does, yes. Yeah. So the first real video thing they launched was Brad Leone's It's Alive, which started off as like a fermenting thing. And that was like fine, but not remarkable. Um, Claire Saffitz became a huge star. And I think she's sort of like a YouTube anti hero in the sense like everything about Gourmet Makes is the opposite of a traditional stand and stir food recipe show. In a t- traditional like Food Network type show, the host is bubbly and smiley. Everything looks perfect. Um, the host is an expert, but in a very sort of snappy, like here's a, here's a useful takeaway kind of way, not in a deep dive, I'm actually a genius kind of way. Um, she also kind of like often presents, her, like she's often like in a t-shirt and a, like a wrinkled apron. Um, she you know, So everything about her exudes like, I- I'm not trying that hard. I'm not trying to win you over. I'm not really all that into that. I'm not really all that into this. I kind of just rolled out of bed. And also, I'm so smart and so good at my job. Well, the other thing is it's a mystery show because the the other thing that happens with the classic Stand and Stir show is they know the answer. And they're just telling you an answer they've already known and yes. they've already found out. But you get to watch. There's suspense inherent in the format because you're trying to figure out if she can figure it out. And it seems like she couldn't possibly. Like I watched the Ferrero Rocher episode and even figuring out what a Ferrero Rocher is and what's in it seems like a, a the a work of careful and informed scrutiny to like even decide that it's a spherical wafer would have taken me a minute. <laughs> That's Not, actually my favorite part of each episode is when yeah. she kind of like list ticks through what are the. What what are the what's the epitome of this food? What makes this food the thing? Well, that's the very sporkful part, right? Where she's really right. describing like the mouthful f- mouth feel and the eating experience. There, there's like a sporkful kindredness in the in in parts of the show because it's really about trying to recreate the experience of eating a food uh, in a, in a in a multi sensory way, and it gives you a deeper appreciation for that food because you're like, oh yeah, it does have that certain kind of crunch, or oh yeah, I do like that it, that it's got those air bubbles there. I didn't know, realize that's why I liked it, but now I understand. Yeah, mm. I mean, there's also something. I mean, there's that great Italian word sprezzatura, right? Which is a studied carelessness. I mean, obviously, her she has a a genius for sprezzatura, right? She's just great, Dan, as you say, of just probably actually rolling out of bed and doing it like she doesn't give a shit. She's a Harvard kid, a Harvard grad who would kind of rather be elsewhere. So that accidental feeling of it is remarkable. And then it's this incredible, I mean, I'm sort of repeating what you've all already said, but 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 what appealed to me about the show is that incredible, you know, sort of meticulous persnickety precision that it takes to properly reverse engineer this thing and discover how it's made. Um, and then the kind of overarching irony of it, which I alluded to a little in the introduction, which is that these are essentially factory produced foods, right? I mean, they're they're probably conjured initially by marketing departments, made up in laboratories, and then produced via factory. And it's kind of the covert admission that we love them, and and what we would really like is just a slightly nicer Oreo or a, or like a snob appeal Oreo. Uh, is I do is, not want a snob appeal Oreo. I just want Oreos, the best. <laughs> well, but then why? But there's something appealing about 
the you know amount of ingenuity it takes for one pair of human hands to make a reasonable facsimile of an oreo that's slightly less synthetic and gross than the actual oreo that dan makes me kind of want to do it myself what is that well, it's that's an interesting idea, Steve. I'm not sure. I, is it that we actually prefer the idea of the artisanal version better and would rather eat that, or is it that we just that's sort of the conceit that allows us to take apart what this classic junk food is, and mm-hmm. in that sense, we learn something about the food that we find rewarding. I see. I think I don't know. I feel like the futility of the exercise is part of what raises the whole thing to high art. Because like, honestly, if I were gonna spend that much time cooking something in the kitchen, I mean, I've been on this huge tear of watching Great British Bake Off. And it's really interesting to, our two topics this week are Gogglebox, which is this British show where you watch people watching TV and this, and it feels like these two things married together would create the Great British Bake Off in some way. But, you know, learning about like mirror glazes and ganaches and like all the fine, the difference between a Genoese sponge and all these, a lot of the technique stuff that she gets into in this show I've actually been like steeped in for the last two months of being obsessed with Great British Bake Off and watching all the back episodes. Um, but like, I don't want a better Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. I just want a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. I don't even like those freaking Justin's ones. Like, ew, gross. Like, give me like the weird <laughs> crunchy chemicals. Like, and the same, like, I don't, I would rather eat a regular for a Rocher. I mean, maybe that one looked like it was something special. But in general, it, it's like the whole exercise is dumb. And the whole history of the show is that, you know, it's not just that It's Alive was their first video. The actual first videos from Bon Appetit was that they were doing just like normal web videos about recipes, like cut open the fish this way and then saute it on both sides and then put some, you know, tomato and marsala in the pan and blah, 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 blah. Like, I have no idea if that would actually be good, but whatever. Um, Like, they were just like straightforward recipe videos. And then the style of this show, the slightly more gonzo, more accident-prone, a kitchen where people drop things and the dropping of things, like, remains in the tape, um, came with that It's Alive show, you know, this show exists. There's multiple other shows in the, you know, Bon Appetit cinematic universe, which apparently is growing to Marvel-esque proportions. And the people who come in as sort of extras and tasters on Claire Saffitz's show then have their own shows. You know, you could, it's clear this is like a rabbit hole that we could fall deep down. I have not traveled Mm -hmm. very far within it yet, but it feels like a different ethos around food video for web beyond just like pure instructional but mm-hmm. this particular one the fact that it's just like n- so not useful right it's well, like part well, it's and, like the opposite of utilitarian is like part of its joy and that's what i mean about it being the opposite of the exact opposite because the you know in, in traditional food videos be they online or on tv it's all about takeaways tips tricks hacks what are you going to learn in this 60 second tasty video about how to make brownies you know and this is the exact opposite of that and half the time mm-hmm. whatever she she has at the end of it she sort of like gives ends up ends up declaring it finished, even though you can kind of tell by looking at it, it still doesn't really look like a Dorito. You know, she just sort of <laughs> declares the thing to be finished. You know, um, right? She's like, I'm tired of this. But you know, it, it, this whole all, all these Bon Appetit. You know, now they have an, a spinoff video that clearly they have a new series that's hosted by Chris Morocco, who's my f- sort of favorite sidekick of Claire's. He's this sort of like. Um, 
very serious one who smells every single food first before tasting them by holding it like a fraction of an inch underneath his nose and inhaling very deeply and <laughs> with, with an intense level of concentration that I really appreciate. Um, he now has a show that's sort of like similar in that he they, they blindfold him and, and they put a food in front of him and he can smell it and taste it and touch it but not see it and then he has to recreate it from memory. Um, but it's the same thing of kind of trying to solve a puzzle. Um, but all this traces back to the success. He, can he see when he's baking? Yes. Okay, yes. so it's only during the exploration that he right. can see. Okay. <laughs> but all this traces back to the sort of unexpected success of Gourmet Makes and Claire Saffitz. And that video is the biggest web video series that all of Condé Nast has going for it. And we had Claire Saffitz on The Sporkful just a couple months ago. She was wonderful and delightful. Dealing with the PR people at Condé Nast... I mean, like I like in my previous life as a news producer, I've booked senators, I've booked presidential candidates. On the Sporkful, we've booked Guy Fieri and Alton Brown and Padma Lakshmi and and big comedians. I don't know that we've ever had more difficulty <laughs> with like I, I I don't know that I've ever felt like a PR person was being more was more protective and concerned about every little detail of the taping. We started off with a very ambitious concept that slowly got whittled away to a straight interview because it was so difficult. Again, Claire was a delight, but um, in more than one of the many phone calls that were required with the handlers, <laughs> uh, it was basically said, like, don't you understand? This is the biggest web video property that Condé Nast has. We cannot interrupt the shoot. We cannot interrupt that. We cannot get in the way of this. Um, they were, like, terrified that anything would, would interrupt it. So this is, there's something about bringing together that level of of care and expertise with the Oreo that is echoed in bringing together Condé Nast and that level of up your own ass, you know, uh, celebrity fetish with someone like Claire Saffitz who could take it or leave it that really, really works. And and I do think that that's just important to emphasize as part of the show. If, if Claire Saffitz had made these videos at home and put them up on YouTube, I... I venture to guess that they would not have been a huge hit. It's something about being in that in that beautifully clean mod designed airy. It's like feels like it's way up in the air in the Condé Nast, you know, um, uh, one world trade. Yeah, and it's 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 something about her being in that kitchen in in Bon Appetit, the fussy, uh, the generally fussy snob appeal aesthetic of Condé Nast and Bon Appetit in particular played against with this um, sort of somewhat couldn't give a shit persona, right? Yeah, if she were doing this like where you'd actually do this in your like Brooklyn rental with the granite counter that was like super chic when they did the reno and is like now looking a little, you know, whatever and the kind of wood cabinets with the grooves and the like in the place where you would expect someone to be like, let's try peeps, you know, like I don't think I did try making peeps in my 20s in my New York apartment, but like I would have. I thought about it, like, you know, but doing it with like, you know, they're like, let's find the right mold. And then they go into like these crazy, you know, wonder cabinets of like every different sort of silicon mold. All right. Can I raise two complaints about this show, which I mostly really liked? Yes. Complaint one. It's a little bit bullshit to call it gourmet makes. Like it just feels like dancing on gourmet magazine's grave. Like the two you know, food magazines of the Condé Empire were the big ones were Bon Appetit and Gourmet. And then Gourmet just got stomped out sort of for no reason and like left a bunch of people heartbroken. And so when you hear from Condé Nast Gourmet makes, but it's this, like it's like remaking in a gourmet fashion junk food. It just feels like the ghost of Gourmet. I, I was not a gourmet partisan. They always had like 20 too many steps in all their recipes and they wanted you to like individually fry ba like bay leaves and put them on shit. <laughs> but like, 
Like I was never going to make a gourmet recipe, but I ate some that other people made for me and they were delicious. So I've, <laughs> I've just, I want to speak on behalf of the gourmet mag, you know, the tears rolling down the faces of the gourmet mag people that just like putting gourmet in the title feels like a bit of a slap in the face. Objection two. Some of them are a little long. Like the characters are good. Like the first few are really more kind of web video length. They're like 11 minutes or 19 minutes or whatever. And then suddenly you're getting to like a truly like full 45, 47 minutes, like wouldn't even fit in an hour of network TV. And it's like, you're charming and your kitchen mates are charming. And this is an interesting problem, I guess. (laughs) But like tighten it up a little bit, peeps. Like it gets a little indulgent, I think, along the way. In response to those criticisms, Julia, the gourmet one, that one is interesting. I, it had not even honestly even occurred to me that it, it's connected to Gourmet Magazine. I definitely agree that they're too long, though, especially the newer ones that are longer. But I did go to I did get to go observe a little bit of one of the shoots. And what was interesting is like how much the shoot feels like the actual thing, which is basically they shoot for two, three, four days for a single video and they're rolling for eight straight hours. Mm-hmm. And then they, t- so they take those hours and hours and cut it down. And I think as she's gotten better on camera and as they figured out what th- what works, they get more stuff that they like. And also a longer show allows them to put in more commercial breaks. I mean, I know, but there's a limit. Yeah. Okay, my question to you guys is, what mass food product do you most want them to try next? The Trisket. To me, the Trisket is like the single greatest engineering marvel of mass food production it's like a woven cracker it's like they've taken like individual strands of wheat i guess and like woven them in this like puffy way with like fat but there's like a pattern but there's so much grease and there's so much salt like what is a triscuit i want her to do a triscuit the actual like like do they, do they have like <laughs> I imagine the Triscuit factory has like uh, miniature looms. Yes, that are like, <laughs> like little tiny looms. But that but it's but it's also kind of quilted. Like there's a puffiness yeah, to it yeah. too. Like what the hell is a Triscuit? I would be curious to know how they get those strands of wheat in that formation. Like she did cheese it, but like the Triscuit strikes me as the true. I cannot even fathom how human hands would make that. I mean, to me, my I mean, to me, the Dorito is the ultimate. It is the um, you know, the greatest snack food ever created, um, and she has, she's already done that one. Dorito and Pringles, which are both two right, yeah, all time classics. Cadbury cream egg. There's so Still many good, good ones. Oh, that would be Cadbury cream Cadbury egg. Cadbury cream be good. egg. All right. What about the cheese doodle or its you know upper middle brow equivalent pirate booty? Um, I would say I'll take that one. I would say pirate's booty. Pirate's booty, because <laughs> wait, like... Wait, that was mine. <laughs> oh, sorry, Steve. Go on. You take Pirate's booty. I'll come up with something else. <laughs> Dan, there are two strikes on you, Dan. I, mean, I think of you as a clutch hitter, but choke up on the bat here a little bit. <laughs> All right, maybe on that note, Danny Pashman, Danny the P, Dan Pashman is the host of The Sporkful. Uh, Dan, please come on our show more often. I would love to. Uh, Dan, I don't think people, if, if on the off chance that people haven't heard The Sporkful, they won't understand without you describing it a little bit what a wonderful and singular creation it is. Maybe describe something you did on a recent episode. Um, well, we covered a lot of ground. Some of the shows are more fun. Some are more serious. But we did a recent one in October um, that people can check out that was all about the use of the word plantation in food branding. So like there's plantation mint tea and people have recipes for like plantation chicken. Um, But that's not a culinary term. It doesn't refer to specific ingredients or cooking methods. So the question is, what are 
white people, because it's pretty much white people in food trying to evoke when they use the word plantation. And I set out on a mission to talk to white folks about that and ask them what they're trying to evoke. And in the process, it kind of becomes an exploration of whiteness in America. That sounds really interesting. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, so you can uh, get the Sporkful wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, um, Slate has assembled the, a list of the 50 best nonfiction books of the last 25 years to do such a thing. Of course, you would consult with Laura Miller, the books and culture writer for Slate. Laura joins us uh, to talk about this. Hey, Laura, welcome to the show. Um, it's great to be here. And you're dialing in from Maine, I take it? I am. I'm actually looking at some lobster boats floating in the harbor right ah, now. Ah, the best. That is marvelous. It really is. Let me quote from um, your co-written introduction. In the work of canon building, nonfiction tends to get short shrift. While memoir has gained a foothold in the literary conversation, narrative and reported nonfiction tends to be ignored. Uh, Laura, I think that that's probably true, but I'm wondering why you think it's true. Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. One is that for a long time, the novel was considered to be the sort of paramount achievement of Western culture. And anything else was sort of running around behind it, including poetry, which had had the title previously. And I also think that nonfiction might be less often seen as a form of art because it's also useful, which is a funny, funny thing. It suggests something funny about our idea of what art is supposed to be. But there is definitely an idea that 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 there are applied arts and then there are fine arts. And I think maybe the fact that the novel was about things that were completely imaginary and therefore not useful made it seem more artful to people. Mm. And um, certain kind of highfalutin recognition tends to lag the actual habits of actual people. Is it possible that if we look over the last 25 or maybe even 50 years, going back more to the new journalism um, uh, of the 60s and 70s, that, that actually nonfiction has been the dominant literary genre? That's really hard to say, because yeah. how would you constitute dominance? Yeah, you know? I mean, there's prestige, and then there's uh, sales, and then there's um, citations, for want of a better word, you know, both academic and non-academic. Like, if you ask people what book changed their life, and they say Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, what does that mm-hmm. mean, you know? I mean, right. it's just a... Well, that's th- part of what makes the list seem so, A, exciting to behold, B full of surprises it's just they that i mean it's not that fiction books are more like each other or any given novel is more like any other given novel than these non-fiction books are like each other necessarily obviously a novel can contain multitudes but this is a such a wide-ranging list both in terms of the book's economic success as bestsellers or non-bestsellers tones, levels of irony, levels of sincerity. I mean, any list that includes a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again and home comforts, which are just two really great breeds that could not be more different, um, makes the category feel extremely capacious. Well, I put this list together with Dan Coyce. In fact, I would say that this list is more Dan's baby than mine, although I ended up writing more of the entries than he did. But um, one of the things that we ran up against was how to weigh different books against each other. You know, we both really like memoir, but 
we didn't want to have too many of those. So, you know, we were kind of horse trading them off against each other. And then I might argue that a book was important less for the experience of reading it than for the kind of prescience or influence of the author, or it had something important to say, or then there are other books where who knows if what it has to say is important, but the book is so idiosyncratic and delightful that, you know, I just felt that it was one going to be one of my babies, you know, one of these books that I was going to insist that we put on the list, uh, even though most other people had not heard of it. Mm. I'm curious, what were the surprises on the list? What were salutary reminders, books maybe people have half forgotten about but are wonderful, and the various bones of contention uh, in, a, in in both omission and, and commission? Well, I don't know. You know, the ones that I picked, I don't know how surprised them. They can't really surprise me <laughs> because I picked them. I was really delighted that, that Dan... Pitt wanted to write about Cheryl Mendelssohn's Home Comforts, which is a a, a kind of semi-demented but also magnificent book. I mean, some of these are like are no-brainers, like uh, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, or um, oh George Packer's The Unwinding, or Andrew Solomon's Far from the Tree, you know, or Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which is an am- amazing work of reporting, but others are really one of a kind. And almost you can't you can't weigh something like home comforts against another book because there's really nothing else like it. I have to say I wasn't too surprised by by most of 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 what Dan picked. Um, they all seemed really solid choices. Some of them I've read, some of them I haven't. Um, and they all seemed very Dan to me as well. He's my editor, so I feel like I, I know what his taste is. But, you know, we would have debates like, should it be into the wild or, uh, in, into thin air? You know, which John Krakauer, that kind of thing. They, those seem like pretty standard arguments. I think the one that was probably the most, um, Intriguing to me is Madeline's World by Brian Hall, which is um, subtitled A Biography of a Three-Year-Old. This is probably the one that I knew the least that Dan wanted to write about. And it's just the story of Hall's three-year-old daughter and the incredible stuff that happens to a person in the first three years of their their life. Um, it's something that has always amazed me and the children that I've known. And, you know, I'm of all the books on this list, this is the one I want to run out and read right now because I haven't already read it. And it just sounds so fascinating. I had that feeling too. And there's many uh, books on this list I haven't read yet, most of which were already on my list of books I should read at some point. Uh, things like Can't Stop, Won't Stop, the great uh, hip hop history, which I've which has been on my list for years. Um, I never actually read Going Clear, the Lawrence Wright Scientology book. I only read the excerpts of it. So there's tons of them that I've had in mind to read. But that Madeline's World one was one of the most like, what? I didn't even know I should think about trying to read this book. That sounded great. All right. What's the um, argument it was most essential to win that you won making this Mm -hmm. list? And what argument did you lose and the ghost of the book floats over your bed at night and makes you sad that you didn't get it on the list? Well, I wish that we could have squeezed in The Lost by Daniel Mendelssohn. I, I don't feel like we have a a book 
that's about the Holocaust, but I feel like that book is more about a community that existed before the Holocaust and that exists in a weird way afterwards, all spread out over the world. The one that I sort of woke up in the middle of the night regretting that we didn't have on there is called At Day's Close, Night in Times Past by A. Roger Eckerch. And that's a book about what the nighttime was like before the modern industrial era when it was just really dark and, and you didn't really go out very much. <laughs> just and, moved to um, get New what, York. I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, what, how people slept. People slept differently. They would wake up for periods in the middle of the night and what they would do during that time and, it, and then how slowly light came to the nighttime world. There are certain things that nonfiction does. There's a certain kind of wonder that it brings that, that really – I feel like fiction can't do, and that wonder comes from the the world around us and all the things that we haven't thought about or haven't noticed. One of my eccentric choices on this list is called Stuff Matters, and the pronunciation of this author's name I'm probably going to mangle because I don't really know how to how to do it. But it's uh it's Mark Miodwick. And it's called Stuff Matters. It's on the list. Don't pay any attention to, 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 to what I'm saying, um, as, in terms of how his name is pr- pronounced. But this is a great book about, he's a, he's a, a materials scientist. And this is a book about the stuff that makes up our world. Concrete, plastic, porcelain, glass the history of these things and the future of these things, the amazing things that people are trying to get them to do, like concrete that can purify air or um, the, or this amazing substance called aerogel, which I'd never heard of before, which is so insubstantial that when you look at it, you can't really see the line between it and the rest of the world. It's just kind of blurred. Um, there, you know, this is a book that I can't even remember why I picked it up. But as soon as I read it, I was enchanted because I didn't know all these things about cardboard or or graphite, you know, things you just, substances you don't really think about that have amazing histories and possibilities. Well, one thing it makes you think about is what is the purpose of popular nonfiction, right? On some level, these are all people who are trying to find out information and convey it to readers who have chosen neither to be, I mean, often they are journalists, but who have chosen, at least for this project, not to be writing the first draft of history or the fish wrap that is tomorrow's paper or, uh, you know, to not do it in the instant disposable way. But have also chosen not to become academics, right, to not retreat into the academy and pile up their little pebbles of knowledge and build a big new knowledge cairn that points the way to future knowledge. Like, they are trying to engineer in a popular readership of whatever size a shifted understanding of the world by um, by the collecting of facts and the expressing of them. And that's what is so exciting about this form to me. And again, form is loose, like there are so many forms contained here. But that is what's so exciting about great nonfiction is that it can kind of change the way you see the world, the way that taking a great class can I mean, in, in a way, what's what the problem with academic writing is that it's for the other teachers, right? It's not an act of teaching the students or engaging the general, the general mind. 
and the problem with journalism is it's too brief, right? It's too well, not a, not all journalism, but um, you know, it's it's too short sighted. You've got to go on to the next. You can't actually spend months or years really processing something and trying to convey it. So, in some ways, reading a great nonfiction book is the closest you come to like going back to school in your reading your popular reading experiences. For most people, if you're Steve and you're reading, you know, philosophical tomes and literary theory just for kicks uh up in ghent <laughs> then then never mind in and the, if you're in the dark yeah in the dark in the dark in doing the dark. whatever you're doing in the dark yeah but like that's to me that like when i think about the books on this list that totally changed my thinking you know there the, it's it's reading bill finnegan's barbarian days which is one of the ones i was so excited to see on here um which made me think about the ocean, made me think about surfing. It's re- it is really a memoir, and it's about how to live and how to be and how to inhabit a body and how to inhabit the planet. But, um, I, you know, it, it it just put me in a place I never could have gone on my own, but a real place. And that's that's what's so exciting about reading this kind of book is that it reconnects you with that kind of learning um, in a in a different register than you can get many other places. And, and some of them also make arguments about the world that we live in that change that world, even if they're not writing breaking news, partly because they are able to back up and get the big picture. One of the books on our list, The New Jim Crow by, uh, by Michelle Alexander, is about how mass incarceration has replicated the effects of Jim Crow laws for many, many black men. And this was a, you know, this book really, it was published nine years ago. It, it really changed the world in many ways. It changed how many people understood issues of race in America and structural racism. And, you know, it, it, it changed how activists think about what they do. And I'm sure it's changed political the political reality, we we just, one of the few um, pieces of legislation the Trump administration has managed to get through has been prison reform, which is really much needed. So, um, you know, they they do different things, these books. Some of them give you a wonderful experience. Some of them open up a whole new world for you. And then others take the world that you think you know, and they give you a different interpretation of it that changes how you go forward. Laura, we still have more to discuss. Will you stick around and we'll talk about um, nonfiction books and what they've meant to us personally on our plus segment? Absolutely. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Okay, let me bail myself out from my own meta commentary. All I meant is that there was a period where the novel and poetry overlapped as dominant genres, but the prestige world did not understand that the novel and let's say from the mid 18th century to the mid 19th century had really the poetry had been displaced by the novel as the dominant literary genre. And I just wonder if we're not in that period of transition now where when we put on our sort of overly self-conscious pointy highfalutin hats, we say, oh, novels, when in fact what we live in is a nonfiction dominant universe. Um, anyway, that too can be discussed also in the plus segment or thrown by the wayside. But Laura, thanks for sticking around. All right, now's the moment in our podcast when we endorse Julia, should I say your name in a funny way or just pass silently over you the You could try container? it. Julia. Yeah, I need that in. Um, <laughs> I am once again going to merely be the conduit 
for the Spotify algorithm. I feel like I, I got a lot of controversial pushback when I noted before that I was very happy to have Spotify's algorithm tell me about music I might like because often Spotify's algorithm was right and it spared me the expensive chaos of my teen years when I had to buy albums without ever having heard any of them and then only f- later figure out whether I liked them or not. I've definitely spoken many, many times in the show about how I spent my Tower Records gift certificate in eighth grade on Billy Joel's Stormfront rather than the B-52's <laughs> cosmic thing, which was like just a foundational mistake that um, I feel like I've had to live with for decades since. So but, the road not taken. Uh, I mean, I like did eventually procure cosmic thing and it is great. And I am not that scarred, but just like, ugh, what a bad choice. Anyway, um, the song I would like to endorse today was recommended to me by Spotify's algorithm. It is by an artist called Wafia, and it is called I'm Good. And if it were strut season, I would propose it for an autumnal strut. I was so young, I was so dumb it's got kind of like a smooth modern disco strut aesthetic to it uh and i have enjoyed strutting around los angeles and driving around los angeles to it So, Wafia, I'm good. I love it. All right. Well, you know, to ma- only to make up for the absence of Dana and the fact that we're only doing, you know, two, only two of us are endorsing today, I might just have three, but I'll be very oh, quick. Okay. Uh, the first is I have to make up for a homonymic uh, disaster that happened in, at the Vancouver live show that I think got cut out of the show. But we through some you know nifty googling we happened upon a um an indian restaurant that had this mom and pop i mean it was just so mom and pop so incredibly authentic and so incredibly delicious and unpretentious i loved it it was one of my more favorite restaurant experiences recently and i endorsed it in front of the vancouver live show and they immediately i've never had this happen before they threw it back in my face they were like no that place sucks like they they vocally said, no, 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 you've made it an error. And it turns out this was just homonymic disaster. It's the one that we went to sounds like some, I think, chain restaurant of a completely different set of premises. Um, and this place is, let me spell it so we don't mess up. It is M-I-R-C-H-I, Mirchi or Mirchi. It is an Indian restaurant in Vancouver that is so worth making a little pilgrimage to it. I don't want to set the bar in the wrong place. The food is scrumptious. It's delicious. It's so good. And the place just has no zero negative. It has negative attitude. It just has no attitude at all. Um, But it was really awesome. Moving along, I cannot believe that the algorithm failed. I found that the the gap in the algorithm through which we can all rescue ourselves and find human agency in our own souls, which is that the algorithm failed to recommend to me, Stephen Metcalf, a Glaswegian Britpop band from the years 1983 to roughly 1989 called Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, which 
apparently all the music I like is derived from, and I don't know why I'd never heard it before, but I love their music. I'm sure you all know it already, whatever it's, it's, I, that band is so awesome. And there's a collection of theirs that I think is like 1983 to 1989 or something like that is all their best songs on it. They're great. And then finally, I finally went on the podcast created by and hosted by my friend, Al Phil Reese at the university of Pennsylvania called poem talk. I do not share Al's taste in poetry. I respect his uh, the ardor with which he likes what I would call language poets or certainly contemporary poets. And um, he's hosted this podcast for a while now. There are hundreds of episodes. I was like, eh, you know, just you know, I love Al, but not my thing, you know. And I went on it and realized he's created something special. I and mean, first of all, he's the greatest p- podcast host. I mean, he just has the most generous kind, low-key, smooth manner. He throws together interesting people, some of whom are not literary specialists at all. Uh, he, he did an episode on an Anne Sexton poem that involved people from the psych community of UPenn. Um, and um, and also, the uh, he always selects a poem for which there is a recording of the poet reading mm-hmm. it. So you begin with that. And then this wonderful discussion flows from it. It's really fun. I've been on it twice. Once he we did Robert Frost so he could make fun of me for my archaic tastes. And then once we did Eileen Miles in order to force me to reckon with the greatness of a more contemporary figure. Um, anyway, I think I think it, he's really created a beautiful podcast and it's worth, worth seeking out. It's called Poem Talk and we'll link to where you can find it. Can I say one thing that surprised me from our LA live show? What's that? I did not. I don't think I interrupted the flow of the proceedings. There's always a lot of moving plates at a live show. Spinning plates. Spinning plates are moving. It's fine. Rhombus Square. Um, You said Emily Dickinson was the greatest American poet, and I would have assumed you would have said Frost. Oh, no. I mean, no one competes with with Emily Dickinson is just in a class by herself. Frost is up there. Okay. You have to get you have to get past so much baggage with Frost, and I cannot blame people for not wanting to do that, make that effort, but that that's not true. I think of Emily Dickinson. Anyway, I, w- I thought I had you pegged after all these years, but you still <laughs> surprise me, Steve Metcalf. <laughs> uh, yeah, key to a good marriage. Um, all right, thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or interact with us on Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch and co-produced by Katya Komkova. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for, oh my gosh, what a cast of characters, Julia Turner, Dan Pashman, Laura Miller, and on and on and on. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you soon.